Good morning, Central. It is a great morning to be with y'all. I hope that you have enjoyed worshiping God and enjoyed being in class and learning, studying that way. We had a great class led by Matt McDougal this morning, studying through the book of John. So last Sunday, we started um, kind of a next part of our congregational um, evangelism training. And last Sunday, this Sunday, and the last Sunday of November, we are going to be looking at our Back to the Bible uh, Bible studies and how to use those. And on Sunday nights, we're actually walking through those, those booklets on how to lead somebody through those studies. And on our Sunday mornings, we are looking at kind of a theme from those books uh, that is kind of the foundation of what we're going to try and teach in those Bible studies. And so last week, book one is kind of an introduction to Scripture, an introduction to the Testaments, the covenants of God, the difference between the Old and New Covenant, which is foundational to who we are as Christians. And so Adam did that last week. The, the second booklet in Back to the Bible was all about the church. And so tonight, we'll walk through that. But this morning, I want to look at one of the fundamentals of who we are as Christ's church and our mission to restore Christ's church. So if you have your Bibles, uh, be turning to Genesis chapter 1. And I hope you're ready to, to buckle up because we are going from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between this morning. So it's going to be a ride. So put your seatbelts on. So go to Genesis, and we're going to start in chapter 1. And if you read the Bible, if you study the, the story of the Bible, you will see that there are eras in human history. We know that from history class. But there are eras in the history of God's people as well. And so I want to start with the first one. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God has always had his chosen people on this earth. And when God created humankind, it started an era that some people call the Edenic era. Basically, the Garden of Eden. Uh, it was a very short but very special era of human history. And the intent in this era of human history was that all people, male and female, would be God's people. That they would, would desire a relationship with their creator. The problem is that humankind rebelled and chose to sever their relationship with God. And ever since that time, God has provided a way for people to come back into a relationship with him and to be his chosen people to have a relationship with their creator. Unfortunately, the majority of people don't choose to come back to their creator, but there has always been a remnant that does, that chooses to go back to God, to be his people. So fast forward to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 3 kind of open us up to the next era of God's people, and that is the patriarchal era. Genesis 12 verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, In the Edenic era, it was the ideal that all people would be God's people. But people chose otherwise. And so when Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham, comes around, God makes a new covenant with him. And God says that this covenant with Abraham and his people, or his family, his descendants, that they're going to become God's people. That God is going to, going to work through them in this world. 
And so this is kind of the new covenant that God makes with Abraham, that his people, his descendants, will be God's chosen people on the earth. But fast forward to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. We see kind of the beginning of a, a new era, of what some people will call the Mosaic era. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Abraham's descendants eventually become the nation of Israel. And after God, and they eventually go into slavery in Egypt. And after God hears their cries for deliverance, their cries for rescue from their slavery, God decides to free the nation of Israel and create a new covenant with them. Now this new covenant at the time is what we call the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, or the Law of Moses, um, what some people call the Mosaic Era. And in this covenant, the nation of Israel becomes God's people on earth. Now this covenant lasts a very, very long time. In fact, it continues up to, and even most of the way through, the life of Jesus. And while a majority of the life of Jesus is spent in the old law, in the old covenant, Jesus, his mission on earth was to establish a new covenant, was to identify once again and define who are God's people going to be in this last era of human history. And so flip all the way over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 brings us to, not today, but it does bring us to the era that we live under today, and that is the Christian era. Matthew 16, verse 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, this is Jesus talking, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus foretold in this new covenant, in, in this New Testament, in this Christian era, that he was going to build his church. But what does that mean? Well, keep flipping. Go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. And we'll be here for just a little bit, so you won't have to flip quite as much. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And he, that's Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So the church that Christ built is also called his body, Christ's body. And Colossians 1 says that he's the head of it. So the church is Christ's body. He's in charge of it. But what on earth does that have to do with God's people? Keep reading. Colossians 1, skip down to verse 21. And this is what John read for us just a moment ago. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So how do we become God's people again? and have a relationship with our Creator in this new covenant, in this new era of human history? The answer is, we must be reconciled to Christ's body, also called the church, and must continue in faith. 
We must be a part of the church that Jesus said he would establish and continue to walk faithfully in that church. And just like God's people used to be in the Garden of Eden, and then they were the descendants of Abraham, and then they were the nation of Israel, today God's people are those who are part of Christ's church or Christ's body. The church are the people of God today. But then we run to the question that everyone is asking. Which church? There are a million and one different churches out there. Are they all Christ's church? Is it just pick your flavor? Well, Ephesians 4 verse 4 says there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So there's one body. There's one church. Even back in Matthew 16, Jesus, when he's talking about this church that he's going to establish, he describes it as my church, singular. The conclusion is there is only one church that belongs to Christ. And if we want to be God's chosen people in this era today, we have to be a part of that one church. The problem is, since the beginning of time, that Satan has been working to undermine and corrupt and destroy the church. And because of that, if we want to truly be Christ's church, we're going to have to continually restore the church back to Christ's original design for his church. But what does that mean? What does restoration mean? Well, the Oxford Dictionary puts it this way. It's the action of returning something to a former owner, place, or condition. And I think the story of Job is a, is a really good example. You don't have to flip there. Um, but the story of Job it is really a story of restoration. If you are familiar with Job's story, then you know that he eventually he had a lot of stuff, and then he eventually loses everything that he has, whether it's possessions or his children. He loses everything. But at the very end of Job, Scripture says this in Job 42, verse 10, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Everything that Job had, both possessions and children, was restored. Or in other words, Job was returned to his original condition. That is restoration. That's what we're talking about when we talk about restoring the church, making it the original design, the original church that Christ intended. So then the next question is, how does restoration relate to the church? I think this is a, an important question to ask. Because Jesus started his church, it's his church. So when the church started in, in the first century, you know, we had original those original congregations, those original Christians, and they were trying to live and worship and look the way that, that Christ wanted them to live, worship, and look. Uh, we can see that when we read through the New Testament. Now, they weren't always very good at it. And just like at other times in human history and, and today, uh, there were people that rebelled against what Christ wanted for his church. And so ever since the, the early days of Christ's church, people have had to, to work at being the church that Christ wants them to be because it doesn't just naturally happen. Satan is working against it, and Satan is working through people to work against it. But is that really a problem? Is it, is it really such a big issue whether we get it just right, whether we're the church Christ wants or we're, we're pretty close? Well, this is where we get to go to the end. If, you're, if you still got your Bibles open, go all the way to Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to start. So there, in about 10 minutes, we've gone through the entire Bible. So if you say you can't read your Bible, you just read through the whole thing, give or take a, a few passages. But 
Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 12 through 17. John writes this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Jesus says to through John to the to the church in Pergamum, he says that this church was not pleasing to him. And the reason is that they were teaching some things that simply weren't true. Now, I mean, you can study this more and get down to what wasn't really true, but the heart of the issue was they were teaching something that wasn't true. They were teaching what they wanted to hear, what what appealed to them, but they weren't teaching what Jesus wanted his church to teach. And so Jesus tells that congregation to repent, or there's going to be consequences. Turn over to Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus tells the church in Sardis that they've fallen asleep. They're a church. They're, they're one of quite a few churches in the first century. But what they're doing is not acceptable to their Lord, to the owner of the church. They were spiritually asleep. And unless they woke up, there were going to be consequences. And so once again, Jesus tells this congregation, repent, follow what I want you to do. Follow what you were taught. One more example in Revelation. Skip down just a little bit in verse three, or in chapter 3 to verse 14. And to the angel of the Lord in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And then skip down to verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, so what? So be zealous and repent. Once again, Jesus was disappointed at the church in Laodicea because of their lukewarm faith. Their faith and the way that the church acted was so repulsive to Jesus that he wanted to throw up 
because of it. But what does he tell them? He says, repent. The same thing he's told every single congregation that has been struggling. Repent. When the church starts to, to live and worship and look different than the way Christ wants them to, than the way Christ designed it to, it's a big deal. When it happens, it disappoints Jesus, and he asks them every single time to repent, to change their ways, to help the church go back to being what he created the church to be. When the church stops being the church of the Bible, the original church, Christ's church, Jesus wants us to restore it back to the original design. That is how restoration relates to the church. It is one of the main missions of the church. I believe the main mission of the church is evangelism. It's to, to seek out those who are not a part of the family of God, to share our faith and the gospel of Jesus with them. That is a powerful, exciting mission. Uh, it's a huge responsibility of the church. It's one we're trying to take seriously at Central. But I do believe that another mission of the church, maybe, maybe the second mission, most important mission of the church, is to continually restore the church back to being Christ's church. Back to that original plan Jesus had for his church when he talked about it with his apostles. Once people were added to the church, they acted like the church. And then people messed it up. But if you read the rest of the New Testament, the apostles were constantly encouraging them, be the church that Jesus died for you to be. So kind of in summary of how this relates to the church, I want to share a quote by Jimmy Jividen. Change toward the will of God is restoration. I think that's a very, a very succinct way, a good way of summarizing what that is. So then the next question, how long does restoration take? This is kind of an interesting question um, because sometimes when we, yeah, as people, we set a goal. We want to do this. We want to be this. And we want to achieve it in X amount of time. And that's great for most goals. So how long does restoration take? It really never ends. There is never a point where we will achieve perfect restoration. We are never going to fully arrive at perfection. I think we know that. We've always got to be working at restoring the church because Satan is always working at destroying the church. But think about it just for you and your personal spiritual growth. We as Christians know that we should be trying to be more and more like Christ. So when do you get there? You never quite get there on this side of eternity, but it doesn't mean you stop trying. And it's the same way with the church. We are supposed to be the church that Jesus wants us to be. And that takes work. That takes us trying to get there every single day. And we're not always going to get there. Um, and we're always going to be perfect. We'll never be perfect. But we can get closer. And we can continue getting closer to that mark and being the church that Christ wants us to be. Part of our mission as Christ's church is to never stop working at restoring the church to what Christ wants it to be. Now, a, a little quick sidebar right here. This is something that, that I had to, did, when I would teach on this in the past, um, did not always explain to people, and there was some confusion, and so I think it's worth mentioning. If you're a historian, or you know anything about church history, there is a historical event called the American Restoration Movement that began in the 1700s in America. And that relates to what we're talking about today. And sometimes when we talk about restoration, that's all people think we're talking about, is 
the people in America who started trying to restore the church to what it was supposed to be. And certainly that's related. But restoration began as soon as the church was established on the day of Pentecost, and it still continues today. It's a never-ending process that Christ calls all Christians to pick up and to work towards in their mission as his church. So then, maybe the, the biggest question for us today, because this may be the one that most people disagree on, is the church worth restoring? There are so many churches out there, and they don't all agree, and they don't all do the same things, but they all seem to be doing good things. So why can't we just let every church be what they want to be and serve God the way that they want to serve God? Restoring the church seems like a lot of unnecessary work if we've got all these good churches with good people doing good things. But it is worth it. The church is something incredibly special to Jesus. There is a unique connection between Jesus and his church. And when we choose to not be the church that Jesus died for, that Jesus teach about, teaches about, and when we say it doesn't really matter what church you are, how you look, we actually hurt Jesus. We hurt our Lord, and we miss out on an incredibly special opportunity. So here are some reasons why the church is worth restoring. If you're in your Bibles, turn to Ephesians. We're going to be there for the majority of the rest of this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We already mentioned this, but the church is the, in the Bible is the body of Christ. What did Christ do while on this earth? Well, while in an earthly body, he loved people. He served people. He taught people. And, you know, Christ has ascended back into heaven, but he still has a body on this earth. He left a body on the earth that is tasked with loving people and serving people and teaching people. And as we already mentioned, that body is the church. If we stop being the church of the Bible, if we stop restoring the church, what else do we stop being? We stop being the body of Christ. And what happens when we stop being the body of Christ? Well, let me just read for you a short passage from John 15, verse 5 and 6. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch, and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. You cannot do anything meaningful in your life apart from from the body of Christ, apart from Christ. You'll be thrown away. See, the, the, the church and the Bible is more than just a group of people that get together and do some cool things. They are the body of Christ that does the most meaningful things on this earth. And it is worth restoring the body of Christ, the church, because it allows us to love and serve and teach other people in a way that you cannot do apart from Christ. But there's another reason why the church is worth restoring. Go to chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and look at verse 19 and through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself 
being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church of the Bible is not just the body of Christ. It is the household of God where we find our family. The church is where you can find your closest brothers and sisters because anyone can belong in the church. Maybe you have a great family at home. That's awesome. Your church family is even better than that. Maybe you have a really bad family at home, and I hate that for you, but guess what? The church family is there for you and is obviously far better than that. The church is your family. The church encourages you. It helps you through struggles. It comforts you. It rejoices with you. It loves you, and you get to love them. God knows we need a family. Why? Because he created us to need that. And he gave us a family called the church. And that is, that's beautiful. Our spiritual family. God created a need within us, and he gives us the way to fulfill that need. Everyone needs family. You cannot survive without it. And sin destroys our families, especially our earthly families. But God said, I will give you a family that anyone can be a part of. But if we stop being the church of the Bible... We stop being God's family. The church of the Bible is worth restoring because it's the household of God that provides us with family here on earth and there in heaven. But there's another reason the church is worth restoring. Ephesians 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church of the Bible is also the voice of Christ. You know, we learn truth and wisdom and even just basic facts of life from other people. Even if you're reading a book, that book came from other people. That is how we learn. And you know, life can be really confusing. There are so many opinions. There are so many differing beliefs. There are so many religious thoughts and theologies. How do you make sense of it all? God left his church to help people make sense of that. And he gives them the greatest tool possible, his word, the Bible. And we, the church, have the awesome responsibility of communicating that truth to everyone that we know. You know, if you're a Christian, which a lot of people in here are, you became a Christian because someone else decided to teach you what it meant to become a Christian. Could have been your parents, could have been a grandparent, could have been a friend, could have been a spouse. It could have been your kid. But you became a Christian because someone else taught you how to do that. The church is tasked with doing that. The church helps people learn the truth about sin and salvation, about love and joy, about creation, about reality, about relationships, about the point of life, the meaning of life, and so much more. Knowing those things, knowing the truth about those things, clears up all the confusion that the world likes to create around us. It helps us live the best life possible, and it gives us a hope for our future with God. But if we stop being the church of the Bible, we stop being the voice of Christ, and truth ceases to be taught in a world of confusion. And people are going to suffer for that if people stop being the church. The church of the Bible is worth restoring because it's the voice of Christ that speaks truth into the world of lies and confusion. One more from Ephesians. There are many more, 
but one more that we'll look at today. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church of the Bible is also the bride of Christ. The biggest reason to love the church, the biggest reason to restore the church, is because Jesus loves his church. Jesus loved the church so much that he gave his life for it. Because the church is his bride. Think about a married couple. Think how deeply a spouse loves the other and how they would do anything to keep them safe. They would do anything to help them be successful, to help them live a healthy amazing life. They would do anything. Imagine how much more Christ wants that for his bride, for his church. And if we stop being the church of the Bible, we stop being the bride of Christ. And if we stop being the bride of Christ, we stop being the people that Christ died for. One of my favorite books is a book called The Church of Christ by Tim Alsop. He's a preacher down in the Memphis area. And he writes this passage, and I've quoted it a lot in different lessons, and I think it's beautifully written. He says this, Paul connects his high view of the church to his high view of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say he loves the church because the people are always perfect and because the preacher is always excellent and because the worship is always a great experience. It's not human perfection that made the church special to Paul. Paul loved the church because he loved Jesus Christ. And since Jesus Christ loved the church and lived in the church, Paul wasn't going to quit on it. The church is absolutely worth restoring so that we can be the body of Christ, the household of Christ, the voice of Christ, and the bride of Christ. I hope that you see why it's worth restoring. It is. It's a mission for all of us as his church. So, then the next question, what are we supposed to restore? That's a big question for another lesson. But there's a very easy way to answer it. Everything. Everything that the Bible teaches about the church is everything we should try and be as his church. We should always be restoring the way that we love other people, the way that we serve other people, the way we worship, the way we organize the, the church, the leadership of the church, the way we become Christians, the way we teach, and, and so much more. Restoration encompasses everything that we are as God's people. One thing as we close today, though, that I do want to focus on that relates to our booklet that we'll look at tonight. What about restoring the name Church of Christ? You may have noticed I've not used the phrase Church of Christ much this morning. Some of you may not have noticed that. Some of you may have been like, just, just say it. Just say Church of Christ. What's he doing? One specific thing that we need to restore as Christ's church is the way we use the phrase Church of Christ. Is the Church of Christ a denomination? No, it's not. So why do we talk about it like it is? And I don't think that we do that intentionally, but sometimes we do. We don't always mean it, but we talk about the church like it's just one of the many denominations. We may say they're Catholic or, or they're Baptist, but I'm Church of Christ. Or when someone asks us, you know, what denomination do you go to? We just quickly say, oh, I'm, I'm part of the Church of Christ. 
Is Church of Christ a title? It isn't. It isn't. It is a description. Christ only created one church. We looked at that at the beginning of this lesson. And it is called the church. It's called his church. It's called Christ's church. It is the church that belongs to Christ. So the name Church of Christ simply means Christ's church. That's all that it means. It isn't one of many denominations. It is the one church that Jesus established, died for, and loves so very deeply. And so as we seek to restore the church, let's remember that the church of Christ is a description of the one true church. It is not a title for another denomination. So my last question, I've asked a lot of questions. I know you're tired of all my questions. But the last question for this morning, how do you fit into restoration? This is a, an important thing to know about. It's an important part of history to study. It's an important teaching of the Bible to understand and to put in our hearts. But at the end of the day, what do we do with everything that I just talked about? Restoration must be carried out by the members of Christ's church. And that's most of you. The church is a family, and everyone in it, including you, have the responsibility to serve that family and to help it function the way Christ wants it to. There is a place for everyone in the body. There's a place for everyone in Christ's church. That doesn't mean that there is a place for you to come and fill a pew. That means there is a place for you to come and to use the talents God gave you when he created you to work for his church, to work for the goals of his body. There is a place for you to plug in, to get involved, to use everything you've been given by God for his kingdom. You aren't just a member. You are the church. You are the church right now, and what you do today determines the future of the church for tomorrow. His church will always need you, but you will always need his church. His church needs you, it needs us to step up and to be the body of Christ, to be the household of God, to be the voice of Christ, and to be the bride of Christ. So will you do it? Will you help restore his church? I hope your answer is yes. I hope our answer is yes. Today, if you've not been doing that, if you need encouragement or prayers of forgiveness to work better at restoring not just the church but your life, we are here for you. If you have not been restored to Christ, if you have never been washed of your sins in baptism to become a Christian, we're here for you as well. Whatever your need, please come be a part of the church as we stand and we sing.